Please turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. And while we're opening up our Bibles, I want to say first how much I appreciate that reading, Jonathan. That was fantastic. Uh, think about for a moment what this text is trying to convey to us. Some of the most powerful stories ever told have amazing imagery, right? They're trying to convey to us an idea. There's an intention behind the opening of this text. It's trying to tell us a story. It's trying to convey to us an idea that we have a creator. Right? Just think about the opening scene. Any, every great movie that we've ever watched right, has an amazing opening scene. We can even think back to the ones, let me just say my favorite, Star Wars. Right? All have epic opening scenes. They tell you this story. They try to set the context for you. And they provide you uh, a key into where the story is going to be directed and where it's headed. And so when we think about this story in particular, in light of the context that we're presently in today, in looking at what we are as people, we're creatures. We are made by a Creator. There was life breathed into us. We were given a purpose. We were designed for a particular end in mind. I want to provide for you, if I can, a positive argument, or really a positive explanation, a positive exposition of the text of why Genesis 1 is formatted the way it is, and how that specifically relates to the issues that we're dealing with today. Why are we standing in solidarity with Canada right now, the pastors in Canada, those Christians, we're going to have to face a really difficult challenge. And the difficult challenge is anthropology. It's anthropological in nature. Anthropology just means what we are and who we are. Why we are. How we are. What values us. What is personhood? What does it really mean? And as Jonathan so carefully uh, formatted today, a real brief explanation, really, I know he went a little over, but it was good, of really what that means, what it means to be a person. Who are we really? And that's exactly what I believe Genesis is trying to convey to us. It's a beginning story. It's a story that gives us a very clear insight to our context. And when I say context, I'm speaking universally. Just think about the imagery that was given to you. We ha here we have this explosive scene where God speaks all things verbally into existence from nothing. It was from his, his idea, an idea that he created and he brought into reality. And it conveys everything about who we are and what we are and where we're currently positioned in reality. And it gives us a particular understanding of our design and purpose, why we're here and the reasoning for that. And if you notice, and I, I love that Jonathan emphasizes this in the reading, that God specifically said, and it was good. He spoke it, it happened. When God says something, it happens. And, and what he identifies, it says, and it was good. And it was good. And it was good. Over and over and over again. In the very last verse, one that I want to spend the majority of my time here trying to exposit for you, and encourage you in, is that what did God say at the very end of the sixth day? It was very good. That's the title of this message today. 
It was very good. So we have to ask ourselves, uh, in light of Bill C-4, Jeremy, what in the world does this have to do with that? Why are you bringing up Genesis chapter 1 as we're trying to stand in solidarity with brothers and sisters all over the world in relationship to this bill? What is the bill all about? Well, uh, not to rehash out everything that Jonathan discussed this morning, and I would encourage you and point you to that Sunday school. And again, I want to reiterate to those who are watching online and those who are here today, I imagine a lot of what you took in, and if you're unfamiliar with what's going on right now, is new to you. You have a lot of questions, and those questions need answering. We'd like to work through that and hash through that with you today. I would like to provide a live stream later this afternoon, just an open Q&A, and just kind of really work through stuff with people if they're interested in doing that on Facebook. And uh, if that's something you're interested in, just hit me up afterwards and we'll work through this together. So you might be asking, well, so, you know, what is the point of this, this little topical study that we're doing today? Uh, why don't we just teach through the Bible, Jeremy? When we get back into the books that we're studying, why focus on this? Why is this so important? Well, John MacArthur recently had reached out to really all of the churches who would be willing to take a stand on this very day because legislation has been put into place that presents an incredible threat to what we consider normal. <laughs> normal life. What God has very clearly laid out in Genesis chapter 1 as very good. It's an attack on His created order. It's an attack on what we are and who we are. How we're valued. How we should perceive ourselves. It's really an attack on the Gospel. The good news of the Gospel. Redemption in Christ. It's an attack on the truth. It's living in a lie. See, a lot of times, and I don't know if you guys had conversations with people, I know that I have, and in these conversations surrounding this particular topic, anytime you put the monikers of LGBTQ++++ into anything, and you're having a dialogue with people as a Christian, you might find yourself in this awkward place that what you're saying is perceived as hate speech. That what you're saying is perceived as an attack as doing harm to a particular people group. That you hang on to something that is old and archaic, that was developed in the Bronze Age by a bunch of sheep herders, goat herders, right? That it's not relevant to today. We're a progressive people group. Have you heard those key terms before? I know I have. They come up often in my conversations with people. And when you bring the, the, the biblical worldview in to bear on the subject matter, what typically happens? What do they say to you? That's a homophobic position. God's a misogynistic homophobe who hates gays and all kinds of other strong language. You just don't care about love. You're not a loving people if you share that. You don't care about my expression of my desire to be in relationship. I want to build community. And this is doing violence to that community. Have you not heard that before? If you haven't personally engaged with, some, engaged with someone on the topic yet, what I promise you will experience is a little bit of that. So today, what I want to, what I want to lay out for you is, number one, we need to stop beating at the leaves of the tree when we have these kinds of conversations with people. Present a positive case. 
don't engage with the leaf beating. And the leaf beating are issues like a homophobic God who hates gay people, who doesn't want people to be happy, who doesn't care about the goodness of creation and culture, who doesn't want to progress, who wants to constantly stifle you and control you and to keep you back from moving forward in life, who wants to hold society back. It's just this made-up myth and idea that was used at some point in time in history to control people. My friends, that's not the case. And I hope to make that very clear for you uh, from this text in Genesis this morning. So we have to ask ourselves really truly, what is the problem? What is the solution that we need to arrive at together? What are we obligated to? And how do we work through this? Okay. So in Genesis chapter 1, what do we find? We find very carefully crafted for us an understanding of the creation account. You have in that a creator-creature distinction, a relationship structure that is provided for us. You have a created order, this well-defined, structured, created order. And in the end, it is very good. Really, the text is exceedingly good. Meaning, let me pose to you, present to you an argument, it is a moral fabric that we live in. An inescapable moral fabric. And what I mean by moral fabric is, we cannot get away in any way, shape, or form from moving within this created order, the good and the evil. There is always a good direction and an evil direction. There's really no in-between. There is no gray area. When you make decisions and when you live and move and have your being within this created order, you are either moving godwardly in a glorifying way, or you are living in an apostate direction, a self-worship way. That is, that is an... Uh, a theme that you will find consistently carried throughout the biblical structure, okay? What we want to address today is to ask ourselves, a Godward way, moving, moving Godward in a direction that glorifies God, is going to bring blessing in our lives. When we move in an apostate direction, it's going to bring the opposite. What do we find in Scripture? Everybody, all the students know it out there. What happens when you go into an apostate direction in a self-focused direction. What is the opposite of blessing? Curse. It's a cursed state. Isn't that a common theme all throughout Scripture? You move in one way, you're glorifying God, you're going to find blessing in your life. You move in another direction, you're going to find curse. Period. There's really no in-between, right? So what we want to ask ourselves in terms of this creator relationship, this creature-creator relationship, what does it mean to move forward and advance in the created order, in this moral fabric, to live in a blessed state? Well, what does Psalm 1 say? My favorite psalm, I think I quote that the most out of any other scripture text. What does it say? Blessed is the man who meditates on God's law, and he does so day and night. He'll be like a tree planted by a water. He'll never cease from yielding fruit. Jonathan brought up an example of uh, the tree this morning. Good trees bear what? Good fruit. What do bad trees bear? Bad fruit. What is that really saying? It's saying that within the design, within the created order, when something is moving toward a glorifying state of God, it's going to produce something good. And it's going to be very good. Always. There's really no way around it. And the opposite is true. If you're moving in an apostate direction, it's going to produce bad. Every time. Okay? So let's take a look at Genesis one twenty six to 
narrow our focus down a little bit here, okay? It says that um, in Genesis uh, 1.26, and I'm reading from the ESV, uh, so if you're wondering, let us make man in our image, God said, okay? We are image bearers of God, meaning we are designed particularly to reflect God in a certain way. We're to reflect God's glory. Let us make men in our image after our likeness, and then let them have dominion over the fish in the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. There's the purpose that stands behind who we are in God's created order. It's by design, right? So it says in verse 27, what? God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then it goes on to say that he blessed them. They are blessed. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over all the fish in the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then God goes on to say, here's what I've given you. Here's all the things that I've given you. And the implication here is you're to go and do good. You're to move in a blessed direction, a God-glorifying direction. You're to reflect His glory. So let's ask ourselves a little bit, let's dig a little bit deeper into this text. What does it mean to be an image-bearer of God? The Imago Dei. To live quorum Deo before God in all that you do. It's a reflection. You're to reflect Him. The reason we're not to make images of God's is because God's already made images of Himself. We're to reflect His likeness, His goodness, in all the created order. That is exactly what we read in Psalm 8 this morning. That is what we were designed to do. That is the fabric and the core of who we are. That is the inescapable reality. That's something that we cannot move away from. As a matter of fact, that is exactly what the unbeliever reflects. But I'm going to make an argument that they desire to reflect their own image instead of God's. But they're image bearers, and that is an inescapable reality. Think of it this way. God is the chief programmer of all created things. Anybody familiar with computer programming? Okay, cool. Let me ask you guys a question. Mac people, PC people, or both? Mac people? We've got a Mac person back there. PC people? PC people, my homies. Both. Both. I'm both too, so I have an iPhone. I have an iPhone and I love PCs, so I can't escape it. Now, what's interesting? What is Mac known for? Mac is known as the creator's software and hardware. This is made for creators. What is PCs known for? The business people, right? Us people like get down to business. Now, the problem is there's a, there's a difference between these two, two uh, unique created items. They don't often work well together. They're not friends, per se. I think that was designed intentionally. Um, Apple has done an excellent job of keeping PC out of their business, right? And vice versa. As a matter of fact, I just did a, uh, creators, a content creators conference, uh, and many of the people, I, I went into one of the, um, the vendors, uh, Ecamm. If you guys are familiar with Ecamm, they're a broadcasting software. I love Ecamm. I know a lot of people who use Ecamm. And I asked them, I said, hey, have you guys finally gotten around to making it for PC? And they all laughed. They said, no, no, we're, we're Mac people. We'll never make it for PC. And I started cracking up. Now, let me ask you guys a question. What happens if you try to use Ecamm on PC even though you know it was designed to be used for Macs only? What would happen? Would it work? Would it fit with the hardware? 
would it? Nope, never. It won't work. Now, I can try over and over and over again to upload Ecamm and try to load it onto my PC, but the creators of that software have determined that it will never work that way. That's right. That's exactly right. It won't work. We can't try to even make it work. We can't force it, right, Leah? We can't force it. It won't work. That's exactly right. That's, a, that's an amen, okay? So we know that's the case. Now, what's interesting about this, this conference, it brought some things to light to me as this Imago Dei image-bearing creature that is also a creator. It was a content creator's conference. What brought to light to me is that we cannot escape the desire to create. We love it. I mean, there's, gosh, hundreds of people in this conference. It was a live streaming conference, too. It was really neat where you log in and you get to meet and engage with other people. And what, what did you get to hear throughout this entire conference was how, their passion for creating things. What was really interesting, too, around that passion for creation was building a culture that was around it. This culture was to be centered in being actually human, being human, meaning you make mistakes, don't worry about it, keep creating, keep you know, building your craft, learning your craft, growing in your craft and understanding that. Anybody who's creators in here, I know my sons love to create. They're constantly creating. Vance is doing origami here during worship. When he's not, you know, he should be worshiping. But I, I mean, they're constantly, we're in the mode of creation. We love creation. We love making things. It brings us incredible joy. I believe that is exactly what we were intended to reflect. This is exactly what Genesis chapter 1 is trying to get across to us. You all uniquely have been given powers to create as a reflective image bearer of God. As a matter of fact, you have a contribution that you can make to the greater body of Christ. Don't you? Isn't, don't we know texts just like that where it says some of you are arms, some of you are probably like more unmentionable, right? And others, uh, the head and so on and the mouth and whatnot. Christ is the head of all things, right? So, but some of us have been given creative powers. Think about uh, the gifts that God had given to the, those who built the tabernacle. He inspired them with his spirit and he gave them gifts to build, to create. All of you have unique creative powers. Now, those can go apostate direction, in a cursed direction, and then those can go in a, in a, in a direction of blessing. Okay? That's what it means to be an image bearer of God. Now, here's what's really interesting, too. To be human, to make mistakes, to recognize that and acknowledge in yourself. Stop being a perfectionist. I struggle with that, just in case, for those who don't know. I struggle with perfectionism. I want to do a really good job. I want it to be awesome. Okay? And then what happens is I stop releasing my stuff and stop putting it out there and maybe I, I i'm resistant or hesitant to engage with certain things because of my fear matter of fact that fear held me back from doing what i'm doing today for eight plus years i didn't want to share it okay i share that to say all of you have a place all of you have a purpose all of you have a unique des design and, and and given have been empowered with incredible gifts to be a blessing not only just the body of Christ, but the extended community beyond us. You have something to contribute big time. I'm going to encourage you today. Do it. Don't, let, don't, don't stop. Don't be held back anymore. Now within that, within this image bearer of God, within this design of who we are, this reflector of, the God, of God's glory we were intended to enjoy and to be purposeful in, also it, remember, all of these are morally bound. You cannot escape this. You cannot avoid this. Okay. We also have an individual biological framework down to the very core of our DNA, 
right? When God wove us, it says in Scripture that he, he knit us in our mother's womb, that he knew us before. It, we were, in, in a sense, in the mind of God, ready to be spoken and brought into existence before the foundations of the world were even laid. All of you. Down to the core of who you are. That's amazing. I just look at this room right now. I think of the uniqueness and the beauty and, and all the wonderful gifts and everything about each one of you, God knew before the foundations of the world were laid. And then he wove this into the core fabric of who you are. He designed you with a particular intended purpose. How can I make that argument? We know texts that are said that he is the potter and you are the clay. And what is the clay to say to the potter? Why have you made me this way? <laughs> right? Think about it. He formed and fashioned you in a particular way. Designed you with a purpose in mind. And you're to live in that purpose. And that's biologically inescapable. How do I know that? He made them male and female. He created them that way. Then you have relationship structures, okay? Which are, are more expounded in Genesis chapter 2. If you move into Genesis chapter 2, you guys may know that it, it gives us sort of a zoom-in effect. Okay, the zoom-in effect is, here's Adam working in the garden alone. And what does it say? God says, it's not good for him to be alone. He needs a helper. He needs someone to come alongside of him, work with him in this garden to cultivate this garden together. And what did he do? He created Eve, the mother of all living. So what do we find? There's a unique structured relationship. Jesus himself refers, and just in case anybody's uh, wondering whether or not this is actually a historical event, Paul and Jesus both refer to this event in the, in the uh, context of marriage, by the way, in family relationship structures, to this very event in Genesis chapter 2. That marriage is to be good, that man's to leave the, his family and to cling to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh and be one, right? So this is a marriage structure. There's something beautiful about the covenant of marriage. Within the covenant of marriage, what do we find? Being fruitful and multiplying, some more than others. Some are doing an excellent job out there. Fantastic. Good job, guys. Right? For those who have children. And for those who don't, this should be a longing, a, a desire of yours. Right? And if God has given you the gift of celibacy, praise God. I think that's very rare. Just in case anyone's wondering out there, I think that's rare. Extraordinary cases. I think Paul was one among a few of them. I don't think that's the norm. I think that God here created within his structure that we are to be fruitful and multiply. And that we are to raise our kids what? In the fear and admonition of the Lord. That we are to tell them that they are what they are because they were designed that way by the living God. They were made male and female. And that is a good thing. That is a very good thing. So within that, you have the family structure. There was a specific design for the family. We know that. As a matter of fact, you can find that permeating another theme all throughout the biblical text. What do you find? Even embedded in the Ten Commandments. You have our relationship with God, the first four, right? And then what do you have right there in the fifth command? Anybody know their commandments? What's the fifth commandment? Honor your mother and father. And right from there, honor your mother and father flows right into the last five of the table. And what is that? Our relationship with one another. So our relationship with God, if it's in alignment, our self-relationship, if you will, our individual relationship, our internal, spiritual, psychological relationship will be in alignment. And as parents, we have a required obligation by the living God to convey the same understanding to our children. And they are to dwell with one another in harmony <laughs> and with the rest of society. 
As a matter of fact, Paul references this in Ephesians 6. What does he say? Hey, raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and what will happen? They'll love you all the time, and they'll get along, and this stuff? No, no, no. It doesn't say that. We'll have to constantly raise them in the rearing and fear and admonition, right? But what, what does it say? Do you, guys, do you guys remember? It's a promise. Do you remember what that promise is? What happens when you raise your kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord? And fathers don't provoke your children, right? What happens? Do you guys remember? It's a promise. Does anybody know the promise? It will go well with you in what? It will go well with you where? In the land. It will. <laughs> what he's saying here is, hey, kid, hey, parents, raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord that they honor and understand their relationship with the living God, that they come to know their design, that they come to recognize what true relationship structures are. And guess what's going to happen as they cultivate a culture, as they build and till this culture in the land? It will go well for them. That's a guaranteed promise. Okay? So therein lies the last point, the cultural framework. You have a cultural framework. So if I can summarize this for you, you have a personal identity, a value, okay, that you are made in God's image. Within that, woven into the core fabric of who you are is a biological framework that within that certain relationship structures must exist in order to move and advance and, and go forward, okay? To go well with you, if you will. That's the covenant of marriage and being fruitful and multiplying. And within that family structure, you are to convey a, sp a specific idea, a self-replicating process. You are to point your children to the fear and admonition of the Lord, to raise them in honor and respect of the living God and who they are in this Genesis chapter 1 and 2 relationship. So within that moral fabric, okay, we have to focus on one more thing, as I presented a moment ago. You live and move and have your being within this moral fabric. It's inescapable reality, right? I can't use a program uh, in a Mac that works for a PC always unless they've developed some fancy software that allows me to do so, like you know, PowerPoint, Word documents, and stuff like that, spreadsheets. And I can't use Ecamm in a PC. That's impossible. I, as, a, as hard as I try, unless I'm this you know, genius programmer who figured out a way to make it work, I have not been given the administrative rights to change those things. God possesses the administrative rights. He has the only code. doesn't matter how much you dabble in DNA. It doesn't matter how much you dabble in psychology. It doesn't matter how much you dabble in any of these things. God possesses the administrator rights. And he's woven that fabric in such a way where it's inescapable. Okay? So what happens when you try to move beyond that? You move from truthfulness about that reality to lying about that reality. Okay, I just want to think about that very careful. I must, in, in order to, to move in a blessed state, I must walk in harmony with the way God has designed me, is what I'm trying to get at here. I've been designed and coded a particular way all of created order has been coded a particular way. Family structures have been coded a particular way. My relationship with God has been coded a particular way. And if I try to go beyond that, I'm harming myself and I'm harming others. Period. So, within that, you, as a Christian, are obligated to accurately reflect this created order. You have an obligation and responsibility to the living God, to the family structures, to individuals and in our relationship with others, 
to accurately reflect that, to accurately convey that. My argument to you today is that is the foundation that you must stand on as you engage on these topics with people. Don't beat the leaves on the tree. Don't discuss homophobia, misogyny, God's evil and wickedness and his hate, his hatred of our belief of what's perverted, okay? Don't don't get hung up in those in those leaves, okay? Go to the root of the issue. The root of the issue is God is the authority on the matter in all things. God has spoken all things into existence. He owns the administrative rights to the code. He's the one that's designed it in a particular way that if it, if it moves beyond this or it works against it, it becomes something known as a virus. How many people love viruses on their computers? Do you like viruses? Those are fantastic, right? They lock everything up, shut it down. You go to do your work and you're like, I want to punch this thing through the wall. I want to throw this thing out the door, right? What do viruses do? What do viruses do? They seize authority. They steal, right? They do. They seize authority. They take control of your computer, they commandeer it, and they start taking all your stuff. They steal from you, and they lie. They lie. They're great liars. You know what? They come in like a Trojan horse. You've heard that one before in the virus world, right? Anybody, computer programmers? They, they look a certain way, but then when they come in, what do they do? They demand authority. They seize everything from you. They steal the life out of your computer, shut it down, and ruin it. They destroy everything. That's what happens when we start to try to write our own code. When we go rogue. When we do something called doing what's right in our own eyes. That program came from a different innovator. Us. Matter of fact, Scripture says that we are... not So we have these amazing creative powers... We're amazing at what we do because we've been made in God's image. What do we do? We take that very thing and we become innovators of evil. We start calling what is good evil in our innovation of evil to the extent that God had to wipe out and destroy the entire world, saving eight people because we are that wicked when, we come, when it comes to our creative powers. We're so wicked that we can develop things that God says himself, man, if you let them stick together too long and unify, nothing can be withheld from them right? That's how powerful of innovators and creators you are, especially when you're unified in a particular cause. So what did he do? Let's scatter them with some language issues. Let's spread them out into the ends of the world and stop them from this unification power. So in the end of it all, what, what, what do we hope for from all this? What's interesting about us innovators is one last facet that I want to zero in and focus on, okay? In the end of it all, what are we really hoping for? What, is, what, what do all hearts desire? I'm not talking just Christians. All hearts desire. Going back to this uh, content creation conference. We are all creators. We have unique powers and abilities. We're image bearers of God, right? These things need to be given to the world. Why? Because if you don't, it's an injustice, right? And then there's this other thing. We all desire love, community, relationship with one another. We want to network with each other and build up each other's businesses and help each other out. And it's called building culture. We want to build this culture around it. Well, let me ask you guys a question. Can this culture, what, let me say it this way. What harmonizes this culture? What brings peace to this culture called the principle of shalom? What? Love does. Love is the law, right? And in, in, in love, you don't have to, all the love fulfills the law, right? But there's law. Something has to bind these things together and keep them together. 
Let's call governance. Right? Can you have peace and order and harmony without governance? Whether it be self-governance, family governance, church governance, or government governments. Can you? Can, is, 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 society, is it possible to find harmony and peace aside from that? It's not. It's not. It's not possible to find peace and harmony in society outside of some governing authority. Okay? And that's what brings us to the C4 problem today. That every culture wants to find a governance, a unifying factor that brings harmony and peace. That's what they want to move towards. It's woven in the fabric of who we are. We can't avoid it. We can't escape it. This is what we were designed to do. The problem is, unless we move into a God-glorifying direction, and we're moving in apostate direction, we still have those desires. We still want harmony. We want peace. We want order. Even though we're moving in an apostate direction, right? We still want those things. Interesting enough, in this conference, there was a speaker. So there's a list of speakers. Man, amazing speakers. Uh, one of them, as a matter of fact, the most successful YouTuber in history. Take a wild guess of who it was. He did a story on Jesus Christ. It was the chosen. The most successful YouTuber in history. The most successful launch. The most successful content. I love this. Can't get away from Jesus, right? Jesus is the most successful character in YouTube history. And the content creator that made The Chosen is the most successful YouTuber in history. Love that. Now, interesting within that. The guy has like billions of views, some insane amount of numbers. Anyway, I can't even go into it. It's staggering. And he coaches people on how to do content creation. I think that's awesome. Okay, But there's another content creator that I want to bring to light before I move into the second part of my, my study here. His name is Jesse Gender. Okay? And he was brought onto the show to discuss... How do you approach the transgender community? How do you approach the LGBTQ community? And I, my wife happened to walk in the door when, when he had just come on. I'm like, whoop, you guys get ready to take some notes on this one. This is going to be really interesting. I'm really fascinated to hear what he, I'm going to call him he because that's what, it is, what he is. It's a he. Sorry, Jesse, you're a he. Even though he wants to be identified as non-binary, okay, he's trying to do like pull some like third-party thing. Like, not Mac or PC, he's just some third-party thing that doesn't want to be labeled. It's really interesting to me. What's interesting about the, his community, what he wanted from the, the, the community, the greater community that he was addressing, was a way to communicate what his desires are, a way to communicate the community that he represents in order to make it more acceptable among people, to be willing to not attack them but really hear them out. They wanted to be heard. What he also conveyed was this idea of goodness and love. So he represents as this sort of ambassador for the transgender community. And I would encourage you, go look at his, go look at his content on YouTube and look what he does. He is the communicative ambassador for this community. And what he's asking for is people to be loving and to be respectful, to honor them as people. Right? To be embraced as just someone who's different from you, but also possesses these good qualities that we all have. He wants to be honored. They want to be honored. They want to be considered just like any one of you. They just have a different way of expressing themselves than you do. Okay? And I thought that was really interesting. 
But they also, he also said, what happens, they asked him a question, what happens if someone comes onto your community, right, and they want to, con- they want to communicate with you, they want to dialogue with you, and express maybe their, their uh, distaste or um, disagreement with you? And he said, as long as they're respectful, you know, I'll engage with them. But at the moment they use language that attacks the community, we'll exile them. We'll cancel them. Have you heard that before? So what is he saying? My argument to you is he is getting at a certain point that I say we cannot get away from. What's woven into and designed in our fabric is this. I know I'm valuable. I'm an image bearer of the living God. I deserve, I want to be a part of this greater community. I want to be loved and appreciated and understood. I want to be communicated effectively with in a loving way. However, I have chosen this path that is rejecting and going in an apostate direction against the created order in rebellion toward my creator. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to say to the creator, no, I get to determine my reality. I reject and deny you. I'm rejecting and denying you for who you are. Matter of fact, I don't even think you exist. Some go as far as to say that. We know fools say that. Why? Because then they say, I'm left with the burden to do what? Determine my own reality. I have to come up with my value system. I'm responsible for doing that. I value me for what I am. And then what do they do? They begin to change all the programming. What do they change? They change the individual biological frameworks. I'm not a woman. I'm not a man. I'm something else. They try to wrestle with the very core of their design, who they were made to be. What else happens? They start fighting relationship structures. They start fighting the marriage structures. Jonathan talked about how this is an attack on family. But you can see how they, how they jar against it. In trying to attempt to say, I'm the one who gets to determine my own value, what does that leave them to do? Well, then I get to determine what biology is. I get to determine what relationships look like. I get to determine what marriage looks like. And then moving on from that, because we want to have peace and harmony, I get to determine what culture stands above the rest. I hold the moral high ground. And if you try to disagree with me, you'll be canceled. You'll be exiled. You will be charged on blasphemy charges. Right? You guys have heard that. You've seen this happen. Over and over again. We've watched it replay over and over. We've even seen this happen with folks like J.K. Rowling. You guys familiar with her? She wrote Harry Potter, the series on Harry Potter. If you don't know much about J.K. Rowling, she's a feminist, a staunch feminist, a chief representative of feminism. Do you guys know what the LGBTQ community did to her because of her outspokenness toward transgenderism? They canceled her. They are charging her with blasphemy charges. They are taking her to the stake and getting ready to burn her. Why? Because she said, men are not women. You guys are celebrating men becoming women and saying they're better at being women than women are. Matter of fact, you're giving them things like the Women of the Year Award. You're letting them compete against women and winning against them in sports. You're saying men are better than women, being women than women are. Right? She's having an issue with it. You can see how there's a breakdown here. A virus has been introduced into the good system. A virus is destroying it and will eat itself up and consume itself. It will steal from you and destroy you. It will take everything that is good and seize it up and destroy it. And this is one of many, one of many viruses. 
So let's ask ourselves a really quick question. What happens when society rebels against God's created design? Okay? And if the creator truly is the only one with the administrative rights and it cannot be overridden without consequences, what does it result in? Death. You've heard this theme in Scripture before, right? You've heard this thing. So someone who takes the self-creation mandate, the foundationless position of desire, feelings, and emotions as their authority, instead of the spoken word of God, what ends up happening? They do what's right in their own eyes. You guys are familiar with uh, Pinocchio, kids? You guys know Pinocchio? What's famous about Pinocchio, kids? What's famous about Pinocchio? Oh, you guys are doing the nose. What's up with the nose? What's going on with his nose? Huh? It grows. Why does, it, why does Pinocchio's nose grow? Because of lying. Pinocchio's lying. The nose never gets shorter, right? The nose just keeps growing, and then it grows to some obnoxious state. Well, at the end of, the, in the end of Pinocchio, the fairy uh, that brings him to life says something really interesting. She says to him, because he asks him, like, how you know, how did you know I was lying? caught me, right? And she says, well, lies, my dear boy, are found out immediately because they are of two sorts. One, they are lies that have short legs, and then lies that have long noses. Your lies, it happens, is one of those that have a very long nose. One of the things I brought up to this uh, content creation community is, because they talked about authenticity, okay, being uniquely you, human, really effectively representing yourself truly. We hate when people put on a show, don't we? Hate it. Imposters, right? Hypocrites, we call them. Posers, exactly. We hate that. They try to represent themselves in a certain way, but that doesn't really reflect who they are. That's called lying. And you guys can spot it out from a mile away, can't you? Matter of fact, there's lie detection systems that are designed to pick up on these things. Your whole body tells the lie. Not just your mouth. Just like Pinocchio here, right? The short legs versus the long nose. Hey, Pinocchio, your nose is 15 feet long, bro. Everybody can see it. It's so obvious. You can't get away from it. You can't lie. You could try to lie to yourself. Do you know what it does? It'll end up destroying you. Do you know why? What do you have to keep doing in order to maintain a lie? You have to lie some more and a lot. You've got to get really creative with your lies. What do people feel like? It burdens them, right? This pressure that you live under when you're lying constantly. And then you try to put on, and then you try to get people to celebrate the lie with you. Misery loves company. So there are other liars who are carrying on the same lie you are. So what do they do? They all lie together. Hey, let's, let's hold on to this lie together and let's just move forward in this lie because you know what? We really don't want to have to be transparent and vulnerable and say that we've been lying this whole time because our whole reputation and career has been surrounded by it. You guys seen that before? Some people lie so much they commit suicide. They kill themselves because they could not bear to have to come to the reality and expose themselves to everyone that they've been lying the whole time and they've built an entire life around a lie. There are systems that can detect this. They see your eyes moving. They see the twitch in your face, your body temperature, all this stuff. You live in a moral fabric so much to the extent where you cannot lie without it destroying you. Matter of fact, Aristotle noticed, noted that. Aristotle says that against lying also comes down to the idea that lies are harmful mostly to the teller of lies. Not only do lies harm others, constantly working to mislead, you're lying and trying to present yourself in a particular way, lying about who you are and what you are and what you represent, 
But you harm, not only do you harm others, but the lie, it's, Aristotle says, mostly harms the liar, the teller of lies. Okay? So let's look at, real briefly, the quick representation of how does it harm you? Well, the scriptures are very clear, right? If we question the character of God, the integrity of the Creator, what He has conveyed to us through His Word, like Adam and Eve did in the fall, what happens? Death. Death. Death in what? Not just physical death. See, oftentimes when you preach the gospel, people say, hey, all sin leads to death. All sin brings forth death. You take people down the Romans road and your gospel preaching, that's usually what people see, right? They see, they go, oh, well, we're going to die. Everyone dies, right? And they kind of just blow you off. No, no, no. Let's take it a step further and let's look at where death really permeates. How far does this virus go in the system? The virus corrupts everything. Death and identity and personhood. Consume with the idea that you are left under this burden, as Jean-Paul Sartre said, the famous existentialist, atheist. We are left with this burden to come up with who we are, but we have to do it. Why? Because we need some purpose in our life. Again, I know I'm an image bearer. I'm living in an apostate direction. I need this in my life to have meaning. I can't just live in meaninglessness, but you have death in that. You have no way to ground yourself in anything. No way to look and say, I have a creator who made me in a particular way and designed me in a way to live in a particular way. And I'm valued. Matter of fact, this, I believe, is the very reason why people abort their children. All the arguments in some way, shape, or form, just tell me if I'm wrong. If you want to argue and debate with me afterward, that's fine. I'm open to suggestions. I believe that most of the argument is surrounded on this very issue. When does a person become a person? Those who are advocates for pro-choice will tell you, not a person until such and such a point. And that point is typically very arbitrary. <clears throat> it's eight weeks. 32. Viability. Up to birth. Pass through the magical birth canal. After birth. Crazy enough, right, in some cases. Not a person. Not a person. We're the ones that give that person the value. They are not intrinsically valuable. I have to, transgender LGBTQ community, discover this value and come up with it on my own and then create and shape an entire culture around it. Okay? So you have death and identity, death and value of personhood, death and meaning and purpose. Okay? It brings death to individual biological framework. Let me give you an example. As a matter of fact, this was brought to my attention by a friend. You know, uh, I am a nutritionist, and a transgender person comes into my um, clinic and they want counseling on, on uh, nutrition. How should I treat them? The way that they're saying that they want to be? Or should I treat them according to their biology? Anybody work in the medical field out there would know you probably should treat them according to their biology. Why? Because it ends in death. Let me give you an example. This is how crazy these Canadian laws are. These are two true stories. Go look them up. There are two physicians, okay? One physician signed in a release form from a person who was transgender and said, sign this release form saying that when you treat me, do not treat me uh, according to my biology, but treat me according to the gender I'm desiring to become. They're going through hormone therapy. And so the doctor says, okay, I'm going to sign this release form. Uh, I'll agree to do that. Well, what, the, what the doctor knows, the physician knows, okay, is it's doing harm to this person because as they douse their body with hormones that don't belong there, as they fight against the fabric of their biology, 
This doctor knows that it ultimately it could be very harmful and even could lead to death of the individual. The doctor takes it all the way. The doctor lets it go. The person dies, but the doctor is like, I signed this release form. The family, after the fact, came back, sued the doctor. They went in court, and the doctor had to pay these huge fines for malpractice, and he lost his license to practice. There's another story. Same kind of idea. The person said, hey, I want you to treat me according to my biology, or to my uh, desired gender, okay? I'm going to sign this, you sign this release form. You are committing to treating me according to this desired gender, not what my actual biology is. Same story. They know that this is potentially going to be harmful to the person, even could lead to death. It got so far into the treatments, this person almost dies. The doctor says, nope, I need to do what's right for the person. I need to save their life. Saves their life treats them according to their biology. The person comes back to it, the person recovers, takes the physician to court, sues them, he wins, the doctor has to pay the fines, and the doctor loses his license. Yeah, I know. Everybody's like, oh my gosh, that's ridiculous. No, this is the delusion. This is what happens in apostate direction. This is what happens when you try to create a government governing structure around a delusion, around a lie, and then you get up and you try to celebrate it, it causes harm to people. People lose their lives, people lose their careers, people lose their financial income. Anybody familiar with what's going on with David Chappelle right now? He spoke out against this LGBTQ community, made fun of them. I don't endorse everything David Chappelle says, but I think what's important to recognize about what David Chappelle is doing is that he's standing against it, and they're canceling him. He's had to turn down multi-million dollar deals because he's unwilling to budge in his principles, which we would say some, in somewhat, somewhat align with ours, that we don't, we don't hold to a position that should shut people out because we're in disagreement. Matter of fact, that's meant much of what uh, our nation's founding was based on. There should be this freedom of expression to the extent where even if we're in disagreement, uh, and even if I don't like you, I don't like what you're saying, we should have at least a peaceful structure to be able to disagree, not be canceled and lose everything. The reason why corporations right now are standing firm and standing in solidarity with the LGBTQ community and canceling people who aren't a part of it, like Amazon removing people's books who are standing firmly against the transgender community, people like J.K. Rowling who are being canceled, people like Marina Navratilova, tennis reference, Jonathan, who is a lesbian feminist, she's being canceled. What we're seeing is the, in a sense, the French Revolution of the LGBTQ movement right now. We're seeing them all putting each other on the chopping block. They're eating themselves alive, and we are watching this culture collapse right before our very eyes, and Canada is one of the chief representatives. They're being given over to their foolishness and their destructiveness, and it will fail because they live in God's economy. They live in God's created order, and God will purge the virus. He'll destroy it. That's what he promises. So we have death in relationship structures. We have death in family structures. Death in the cultural framework. Psychological death. Death, death, death across the board. So this in my, in my conclusion here, okay, is to say, if this moral fabric is evil, they are literally, as Paul says in Romans, exchanging the truth for a lie. They're falsely reflecting reality, and they can only maintain this lie for so long. Look, guys, when we see a man dressed up as a woman, we all like kind of freak out a little bit. 
we cringe, right? This person's trying to maintain something that they're not. We know it. We know people right now like that in the very high levels of our government who are trying to put on a facade that they're a woman and they're not. This person actually happens to represent the medical and scientific community. And I posted on Twitter, how can I trust someone who is actively deceived and lying to themselves and lying to everyone else about facts of science? That's a conflict. That's incoherent. Here's a man who's denying biological reality, meanwhile telling us that we need to embrace his scientific understanding of COVID. Anybody else have a problem with that? I do. I really struggle with that. Okay? I really do. And we all should together. So what is the result of this? What is the ultimate result? What is the problem you're facing in bills like C4, where people try to build a community and a culture and a legal system around the propagation of this message, this apostate direction that is going to destroy and bring death to all things? It's going to bring, like Jonathan said, he, he talked about tyranny and chaos. Tyranny and chaos are the ultimate result of these, of these things. So our job is to stand firm. Why? Because all morality is legislated, and all legislation is legislated morality. You might have heard before, you know, uh, we don't legislate our morality. Hey, you Christians, when you want to bring up this idea of human sexuality, anthropology, relationship structures, culture, marriage, by the way, the government doesn't get to define marriage. God does. God gets to define what love is. God gets to define what community and culture look like. You have an obligation, according to Romans 13, to stand. To stand in what? To call the minister to an account. The minister of what? The deacon of the governing authority. Those who have an obligation to uphold justice, peace, and righteousness, to maintain order and peace in society, that they don't bear the sword excuse me, in vain. That it's their job to be uh, a terror to evildoers. And so when you stand in your voting, when you stand in your conversations, when you stand on your social media platforms, when you stand, you need to speak to that. What? This is how God designed you. You're lying to yourself, and you're bringing death to our society. And here's why. Here's a very careful reason why. It's not because God's homophobic. It's not because he's misogynistic and doesn't like gay people. It's not because we don't want to embrace the transgender community. That's not it at all. It's they're building a culture that's unsustainable, that's incoherent. And they're demanding that everyone embrace it with them when they're lying to themselves, straight up. And they can only maintain this lie for so long. As a matter of fact, Brian brought up an excellent point in Sunday school. Even Darwinian evolution would say that they're being selected against. That's mind-blowing. Even Darwinian evolution, which most of them are, they're Darwinists. They would point, my wife brought up this point, they would point and say, well, even you know, animals in the animal kingdom have demonstrated some sort of you know, homosexuality. And you go, right, so Darwin would say they're going to cease to exist after so long. That genetic code is going to be selected against and they will cease to exist. So even in Darwinian evolution that acknowledges some form of biological necessity, if we could put it that way, recognizes there's a goodness to the moral fabric uh, of creation, a goodness to the order. Okay? So they can't even use that argument to, to propagate their desires. So in the end, we need to ask ourselves, what's the solution? The gospel, my friends, is the solution. And that's not just you know throwing that out there 
uh, a thing to say, to be cliche, okay? The gospel truly is the solution. What I have just done for you is provide the foundation that I myself would use as I am engaging conversations with people on this issue. When you're talking to people about this Bill C-4 thing, because folks, after this day, after all these churches nationwide and Canada-wide and really worldwide have spoken on messages just like this, you will see a ripple effect of conversations occurring. Be prepared to have a conversation. And I hope between what we've done today uh, in our Sunday school and then this message being preached for you, that you have a robust foundation to preach an untruncated gospel. A gospel that declares the glory of God that really describes in a positive way of who we are. One that conveys the truth of reality. And one that shows and demonstrates that Jesus Christ paid the ultimate price, that he died so that they wouldn't have to move in an apostate direction in their rebellion, developing a culture, that they could be made new in an identity in Christ. And as such were some of them, we now are. That we've been washed, that we've been cleansed, that we've been made new in Christ Jesus, that our identity is found in him and nothing else. That's what you should be preaching. So we are obliged, as my brother Rob said, to not consent in silence. Speak to it. Move to it. (laughs) Preach it. Right? Don't be afraid. Don't be intimidated. You may not have all the answers. This might not be readily available to you like it is maybe with some who've been focusing on this for some time. But you have a community around you ready to encourage you and equip you. That is what we're here for, to equip you for the work of ministry. My encouragement to you would be Take this opportunity as a tremendous opportunity to engage and stand. Stand. So the call to stand, as Jonathan did, I'm just going to repeat that and I'll close with this. A call to stand, we need to stand in attention. We need to be aware and alert about what's going on. We need to start recognizing that we all have an obligation. And I'll be the first to admit, you guys, I have not done a good job of understanding what it means to be actively involved in civics. This is an ongoing conversation. Brother Pete, you know, someone who has really encouraged us in this to grow and to learn about it. It's an intimidating thing, and it's not something that we're good at because we've held to a more retreatist mindset in our theology, a hope that will be swept away from all the madness. We have a responsibility to stand in attention, to stand firm in the truth, and to stand in solidarity with those who are. We have to link arms right now, you guys. And most importantly, stand in the empowering grace of Jesus Christ. It's going to be, I believe we're going to be facing a time of, of difficulty, but listen, guys, as Brother Pete, if I could quote him, we are not of the ten spies theology as we move into the promised land. We don't look at the great giants and get afraid and run away. We want to be like the two spies who came back and said, Look at what the Lord has provided for us. Look at this tremendous opportunity. The land is ours. Look what the Lord is delivering into our hands and to go out and do good, to preach the gospel, that ultimately one, the one day Christ will be known and, and reign over all, and this resistance will eventually go away. But know this, that as you face this resistance, that will come, he promises us persecution, trials, and tribulation, right? That doesn't mean we lose down here. That doesn't mean we lose down here. As a matter of fact, we've already won. We've won in, in Christ. And so go out in that encouragement today. I hope this has been a blessing to you. Uh, let's close this time in prayer. Pray with me.
Heavenly Father, I just pray that uh, you would have been honored today in this message. This message is so close to my heart, so near and dear. It's something that I find myself often reflecting upon and returning to. And I see that throughout the body of Scripture, that this is a common theme that we need to recognize. You are a wonderful creator. The songs that we sang together today reflected that. Psalm 8 acknowledges that. David revels in that. And you have fearfully and wonderfully made us. We're powerful creatures designed to reflect you. Something that even angels desire to look into. That angels marvel at. Here we are, this lowly, fleshly creature that you have given a status um, that is above, uh, above uh, our understanding. And even so much more so in Christ. That that has been exalted. That you are bringing us to glory. That is our ultimate hope. And so as an apostate culture seeks to move towards its own glory, a glory that is fading and passing away, that we can see collapsing before our very eyes, that as they have their own eschatological hope of um, harmony and peace, we realize that that will never, that what they hold to will never accomplish that. It is a viral effect. It is the problem of evil played out right before our very eyes that you, Jesus, entered into our weak state. You were broken for us on our behalf. And you came to destroy that, ultimately. You rose again from the dead, conquering it, validating your ministry and your life and who you are. And you are seated on the throne. And that we know, ultimately, our hope is that death, as the final enemy, will have been conquered and you will hand your kingdom over to the Father. We are excited about that. We are eager to see that. And Lord, we know it's going to come, which is why we move out boldly into society, proclaiming the good news of your kingdom and your work on the cross. I pray you bless the time of our worship together. In Jesus' name, amen.